National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for today's edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Last fall, we did a series of shows on the U.S. intelligence community. One of our guests was FBI Special Agent Jill Sanborn, who led the FBI's national security branch before she retired. In our first year on the radio, we also had retired FBI Special Agent E.K. Wilson, who led a very important counterterrorism investigation that resulted in several convictions. So we've done two shows on the FBI, but today we're going to do a third. This time we're going to look at a unique aspect of the FBI that was built up significantly after the terrorist attacks on September 11th of 2001. The FBI has intelligence analysts, and those analysts play an important role in supporting the FBI's core missions. With us to talk about FBI intelligence analysis are two guests, both of whom who serve as intelligence analysts here in the FBI Minneapolis field office. Our first guest is Chris Tatarka. Since joining the FBI, Chris Tatarka is assigned as the intelligence program coordinator in the FBI Minneapolis field office, serving that capacity for eight years, and now serves as a strategic intelligence analyst. Prior to joining the FBI, Chris served in the United States Army from 1990 to 2011 in a variety of positions, including as an infantry officer, a military intelligence officer in the regular Army, and as a full-time member of the Minnesota Army National Guard, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. Chris's military assignments included leading a section of over 180 intelligence analysts during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2009, and as an assistant professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. He's a certified leadership trainer for the FBI and holds a bachelor's degree in psychology, master's degrees in psychology and public administration, and a doctorate in business administration. Our second guest is John Watson. John Watson has been an intelligence analyst for the FBI Minneapolis Division for 18 years. John was initially assigned to work public corruption and white-collar crime. However, he soon moved to the FBI's national security side and has spent most of his career working intelligence matters related to the African terrorist group Al-Shabaab. John is a Minnesota native who earned a history degree from Hamlin University in St. Paul, then a uh, Juris Doctorate degree from the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law, and a Master of Professional Studies in Homeland Security Leadership from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. John Watson is a certified FBI instructor and a frequent public speaker, trainer, and lecturer on international terrorism and intelligence. He also maintains an active license to practice law in Minnesota. Chris Tatarka and John Watson, thanks for joining us today on National Security This Week. Morning. Good morning, John. Thanks for having us. Uh, I, I note that uh, both of you are, you know, you've been with the FBI for quite some time. Uh, I like to start this show by learning a little bit more about my uh, about my guests uh, so the listeners can understand a little bit about your background. What was it that drew both of you to, to join the FBI? Uh, you both had careers, significant careers, prior to, to making that jump to federal law enforcement. And I'm sure the listeners would like to, to know that, uh, the answer to this. Uh, Chris, why don't we start with you? Uh, yeah, it's a... Interesting question, John. So uh, as you mentioned, I served in the, in the military for 21 years, and, and I had come back from, from that deployment to Iraq that you had mentioned. And while I think the Army had a few more things uh, for me to do had I chose to stay, uh, I ran into a, an old colleague, an old Army buddy of mine who was in the FBI as an FBI agent, and said, hey, we're looking for, for management to work in our intel program. Uh, and I had no really had no thought of ever doing that until he mentioned it. So started to kind of do some research and look into what the opportunity might be. 
And for me, what really spoke to was two things, one of which was the chance to stay in Minnesota. My wife's a White Bear Lake uh, native, and so my kids were in school here and, and just really like Minnesota. But the second piece was to continue to serve you know, outside of the military. And then as you look at the FBI, one of the things that was so interesting from an intelligence perspective was the breadth and scope of what the FBI does. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about national security this morning, but to talk about to go from threats involving national security to violent crime to white collar crime, uh, crimes against children, all of these things. And to think, how does intelligence support all of those threats and those different threat actors who do different things? So chance to serve to stay in Minnesota was really the, the thing that kind of led me uh, to put in the application. And they offered me a job. And, and here I am. All right. And, and John Watson, how much to, did your education, training and experience as a lawyer uh, help you to step into the intelligence analyst position with the FBI. I mean, were you surprised at anything you found uh, once you stepped into the position or or maybe pleasantly shocked to discover uh, once you'd started supporting primarily the counterterrorism enforcement mission, how much uh, how much your law, your uh, law degree, legal background helped? Uh, two questions there. Uh, on the law degree, I'm not really using my law degree, as you hear. I'm yeah. sure you hear your students talk about an awful lot, worrying about as seniors graduating and using their degree. Um, that uh, I'm not doing that. Uh, yeah. What I'm doing though is uh, I'm using the skills that I learned in law school, and they directly apply to being an intelligence analyst. So, when you're in law school, the main skills that you develop are public speaking, uh, writing, and research and analysis. If you're in practicing lawyer, what you're doing is you're doing maybe oral argument. Uh, skills to do that are not that different from doing an intelligence briefing. Uh, if you're doing um, writing a motion or a legal brief, not terribly different from writing an intelligence product. And then the big part there is the research and analysis. It's the analytical, analytical way of thinking is what you really develop in law school, and that's very useful for what we do. The big difference is uh, we're not advocates. I'm not advocating for a client. I'm not advocating for a point of view. I'm not advocating for a policy. A few years ago, I was in a briefing with the Minnesota policymakers, and it developed rather unfortunately. I was there to give an intel brief, and they were led to believe that I was there to give policy recommendations. <laughs> uh, first off, the FBI doesn't do policy recommendations, right, right. Uh, except maybe at the highest levels with the director testifying to Congress, telling Congress what we need to do or the jobs that Congress told us to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's as far as the Bureau goes with policy, and certainly not intelligence analysts. Uh, that's one of the worst things an intelligence analyst can do is – to provide a briefing, to write an intelligence product that is policy prescriptive, as I call it, to write it in such a way as the decision maker, the person you're working for, really only has one choice. And so that's the largest difference. Um, what I was surprised by, I was surprised by absolutely everything. So uh, first off, I was surprised that all the violations that the FBI investigates are here and active in Minnesota. So I'm a Minnesota resident. We uh, pride ourselves on clean politics, for instance. You know, that sort of thing doesn't happen here. I went to the FBI and found out, well, it does happen here. Yeah. Uh, that was the first thing I was working was public corruption. So all those things are here. Uh, counterintelligence, which, which Chris will talk about. Um, international terrorism, which I'll talk about, are all here. Um, and the other is that the FBI is so locally focused. I didn't expect this. Um, I didn't know what the FBI was when I was growing up. I didn't know it was a real thing, really. It wasn't something that you could do or dream to do. And, but when you thought about them, they were people that were in Washington, D.C. They were far away. They were vaguely suspicious. We didn't know what they were. <laughs> uh, but I got there and realized the FBI is incredibly decentralized. 
So there is a headquarters in Washington, D.C., but most of the work is done in field offices. So here um, we're in the area covered by the Minneapolis field office, Minnesota and the Dakotas, and the people that work there live here. Um, either their whole lives like me, uh, part of their lives like Chris, they're drawn here by family. Uh, maybe they're brand new to the area. The Bureau sent them here, and a lot of them stay here and live here. So the Bureau is not this other entity that flies in from Washington, D.C. on a jet. Mm-hmm. Apparently there's TV shows like this. <laughs> um, but it's local people that are just working to try to keep their communities safe. That's yeah, all. That's a great point. And Chris, uh, I, I noted from your your uh, the bio that I used to introduce everybody. You and I actually were commissioned and served in the exact same time frame, nineteen ninety to to twenty eleven. Yeah. So I, I mean, our backgrounds are very. And similar. for those listeners, we were we were both ten when we uh, started started our service. That's <laughs> uh, making us much younger than we otherwise might appear. But for your time as an intel uh, officer in the army, uh, what what John was just talking about about the fact that intel uh, personnel, intel professionals, we don't we don't make policy, we don't advocate for policy. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect of uh, what you brought from the army into the uh, FBI? Yeah, and it's it's an interesting thing, and I think in the army, you, you know, you're taught uh, very just the nature of armed conflict, and and the army with its you know 200 and some years of 240 plus years of being involved in armed conflict or preparing theoretically at least for the next conflict. Uh, there's this whole litany of things that the army kind of teaches you relative to the intelligence profession, but, but across others. And, and one of those things is about the, the nature of being predictive, yeah. which, you know, to quote Yogi Berra, the future ain't always what it used to be. So <laughs> it's an incredibly difficult task for anybody in any intelligence-related function, and that's both FBI, Army, you know, the weather people who work for uh, you know, meteorologists, to say what's about to happen next. But that's so critical um, in terms of the profession and being able to enable planning. So a lot of times, and I've had this conversation with folks in the FBI and certainly uh, as a leader in the Army with folks, it's okay to be wrong. You don't want to be wrong, but it's okay because you're driving a planning process. And so that's something that uh, we certainly try to continue to instill. And it's, it's, it's hard, when, especially if you're new to the profession. Uh, you're in the FBI and you're in front of a, a, a supervisor or one of our executive managers, and you're going to say, I think this threat in the next six months is going to look like this uh, because there's a pretty good chance you're going to swing and miss and who wants to be responsible for swinging and missing on something as important as a counterintelligence threat or a terrorism matter or a, a crimes against children matter and so there's a reluctance professionally to do that uh, but it's so important to risk management to figuring out how to investigate how to move forward as an organization so that's one of the things that you'll learn uh, as you get a little older again we're not old john you and i um <laughs> but you, you do get a little bit better at okay i'm I, i've got to do this as part of what i do and uh, i'm going to try to be as accurate as i can and hopefully i you know i hit get more base hits than i do strikeouts uh, in the profession but it is a critical part of what we have to do yeah uh, I, I always think uh, back to something I, I heard from uh, Colin Powell when he was, uh, you know, four-star general, chairman uh, uh, of the Joint Chiefs and whatnot. He used to say he had this uh, as a commander. You know, it's always the commander's responsibility. I think uh, for the FBI, it's also a responsibility of the supervisor, special agent in charge, uh, ultimately at each of the field offices. Tell me what you know. Tell me what you don't know, and tell me what you think. That's the that's the responsibility of the intelligence officer. I, I thought that was a great uh, quote on uh, part of Colin Powell. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Chris Tatarka and John Watson, both of whom serve as intel analysts with the F- Federal Bureau of Investigation 
And we're discussing intelligence support to FBI law enforcement operations. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Chris Tatarka and John Watson, what what exactly does it mean to be an intelligence analyst with the FBI? Uh, you both have different focus areas. Uh, perhaps you could give our listeners a sense of uh, what it is you do each day, your, your areas of responsibility, with whom you coordinate here locally and around the country, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I guess, John, do you want to start? Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, FBI intelligence analyst jobs, IA jobs. Well, I'm no doubt we'll start slipping into acronyms. So that's what we mean. <laughs> I'll try. And, I'll try and stop you. Yeah, just poke that. me a little bit. <laughs> okay. and I'll, I'll stop. Uh, FBI intelligence analyst jobs vary dramatically by a lot of different things. And one is by program. So your job will look dramatically different if you're working or assigned to a criminal program like white-collar crime, crimes against children. Your job is going to look more like what a crime analyst does in a police department, which would be more often you're supporting investigations. You're doing case support. Uh, that's not all you do, but you'll do more of that. If you're assigned to national security programs like counterintelligence, international terrorism, you're going to be working more like an intelligence analyst in the U.S. intelligence community, the CIA, DIA, NSA. So that's one massive variable. Uh, another vari variable, field office. Are you working here? Or are you working at headquarters? Uh, you're placed in the intel cycle, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Uh, I'm in a different place than Chris is, and that, that means something. What I do is, mostly what I do is, I write and release intelligence information reports, IIRs. And what those are are little reports that uh, write up raw intelligence that the FBI gets. This is bits of intelligence we might get from anywhere. And we get that out to other agencies in this kind of report in IAR. Uh, this was a very important part of the 9-11 Commission report. So the 9-11 Commission report, of course, reviewed those attacks, and they found that one of the problems in the U.S. government was not, not sharing enough information, particularly mm -hmm. the FBI and the CIA. So a very big focus of the FBI when they started hiring intelligence analysts like us was to do that, to get this information out the door. And that's what I do. Um, so for people out there, um, they might think about it in terms of connecting dots, things like that. I make dots. That's what I do. Uh, smart people like Chris later on put those dots together. <laughs> that's the difference between raw intel and finished intel. Yeah. Um, so it's in the job that I do, putting this, these reports together, you're making decisions about who you share this information with. Uh, that might be uh, other field offices, other federal agencies, foreign governments. You're making decisions there. You're making decisions on how much detail to include, how all the different parts are classified. Uh, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to share the maximum amount of information while at the same time protecting the identity of the source, if it's a human source. And, and that's a difficult thing to do. And there's just countless ways you can screw this up. Um, but that's mostly what I do. I do s some briefing, too. I um, haven't done a lot in a while. Both me and Chris have done a lot of briefing. But uh, there's a difference there as well. Uh, I'm usually briefing a topic I know very well. Uh, Chris is often doing a very more, much more difficult thing of briefing kind of current intelligence of, over a range of issues. Um, but in a nutshell, that's what I do. Okay. Chris? Yeah, so I have kind of a unique position really in, in the Minneapolis field office, and there's kind of one of me or a team of me in every office across the Bureau, and that does this sort of broader sort of ana analytic work across the FBI portfolio. So I uh, inevitably am doing research projects related to um, national security, but also on the criminal side, occasionally even in the cyber field a little bit as well. Uh, it's a, a sort of a term in the intel community called indications and warnings intelligence. It's sort of a version of that. And essentially what I would do is look at things that are going on 
in the world. That can be financially, economics, can be cultural, can be events that are happening, and then try to make an assessment of how that may impact the great state of Minnesota or the great states of North and South Dakota uh, for our decision makers to then say, okay, we have a trend or we have a pattern or we're about to potentially uh, incur some risk uh, in, in an area related to those things. So it's, uh, we call it sort of strategic and it's not in the classic sense of national strategy, but in terms of this three state area, uh, it certainly is something. And an example I use uh, when folks ask me is we had this thing called uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and I say that kiddingly, but when that first hit, if, if folks recall, one of the first sorts of uh, beliefs would be there was going to be this massive global recession. Um, thankfully, that, that didn't come to pass, perhaps at least as bad as, as a lot of uh, leading indicators would, would assume. So then the question for uh, myself, but really for our office, is what's the impact of a pandemic on threat activity? Mm. So, you know, obviously you're looking at things like fraud, fraud against the government. We knew as soon as those stimulus programs started, there was going to be an opportunity for people to commit fraud. And certainly fraud cases in the United States against the government have absolutely skyrocketed. So we were trying to get ahead of those types of things uh, relative to national security. One of the things was global travel was flat out stopped. You know, you probably all remember those pictures of an airplane with two people on it because nobody was flying anywhere uh, because of flight restrictions and just fear of the of what this pandemic was going to be back in the early days. So we know historically that when a foreign nation state wants to gain information on the United States or any country, they will often send people to that country. So one of the questions we were all looking at, at ourselves over our masks or our Zoom screens or whatever it was, was what happens when nobody's traveling here? And, and our thought was, well, that's kind of a good news thing in terms of protecting um, U.S. information, whether that's private uh, company information, trade secrets, research and development, or government information. That's a, kind of a good thing that this uh, fallout from this pandemic. But then the question was, these, these nation states that want information on Minnesota companies, or they want information on military contracts or things that are going on here, they're not going to stop. That desire for the information isn't stopping because there's a pandemic. So what else might they do to try to gain the information? So that's the kind of work uh, that I get involved in. And I work almost always anything that I'm doing with the analysts that are specifically assigned to those programs, sort of the experts. So I kind of give a little bit of a high level look and they're able to sort of hone me in on those more specific patterns or threats that are out there. So are, are, are both of you and the other Intel analysts that, uh, that are also assigned here in, in, uh, in the Minneapolis uh, office, it, it's all-source analysis, right? I mean, all-source information that comes in, you, turn, you, you analyze it, and in, the products you turn out are sort of finished intelligence products. Is that kind of a good way to think about it, it or it, not? Yeah, that's one way to think about it. Uh, another way to think about it is, is a lot of Intel analysts are assigned to a specific squad. They're embedded with that squad. Okay. They're embedded with a white-collar crime squad. That's their universe. That's what they know about white-collar crime in Minneapolis Division, our three-state area. So they might be writing those little reports that I, like I do, mm -hmm. or they might be uh, conversely doing more like what Chris does uh, to put those dots together into a finished product and come to an analytical conclusion. So they could be doing that. Um, Chris, you're more on the strategic level, though. Would you maybe want to talk about the different difference between you and embeds, embedded analysts? Yeah. So as I kind of mentioned, looking at those sort of broader trends is, is what I'm doing, whereas our folks who are sitting on those squads, and they, they get kind of have to run the full sort of spectrum of, of analytic work. Some of them are working very specifically with an individual case 
uh, investigator, a special agent on a specific case, a specific criminal matter, uh, whatever that may be for that program. And so they're supporting this information to help them do that. One of the terms that I think someone in the Bureau said about five years ago uh, that we kind of use as a loose definition of the term is intelligence is information that supports decision making. Yeah. Um, and that information can be something raw, like what John said, is putting that into a, a specific thing, or it's taking bits of information and packaging that in a way, much like I think I use the metaphor of a truck factory. Uh, if you have a Ford truck factory, it takes raw materials, metal, glass, electronics, runs that through a systematic process called an assembly line, and out comes a truck. And that truck gets shipped off to go get sold to a consumer. And so our embedded analysts and, and folks who are doing that kind of work are on the sort of the assembly line of the intelligence production mechanism, taking that raw information, uh, which is typically kind of all source. It comes in from a whole bunch of different places. Um, and it does, does depend on the threat. But on the national security side, uh, it can come from the intel community. It can come from other government agencies outside the intel community. It can come from foreign partners. A lot of it comes from our state, federal, local law enforcement partners. We get a tremendous volume of information on what's going on in our communities from, from law enforcement on the ground. And the last place we get information, this raw stuff that we use uh, to try to formulate intelligence, is from the people of Minnesota, the people of North and South Dakota. We get a tremendous volume of useful information about things going on in the community. And, and thankfully so, because people see something going on and they say something, to borrow the DHS term. But they are out there telling us, hey, this is unusual. This is suspicious. I might be a victim of this. Uh, and that's across all the threats, cyber, national security, uh, criminal programs, et cetera. Uh, and we take that then and then try to put that into that meaningful thing. And whether you're an embedded analyst uh, or one of our tactical intel specialists or myself, that's kind of the, the raw materials we use to then go through that process. Uh, so, Chris, you served uh, sort of past tense uh, as an intel uh, program coordinator uh, and now as the strategic analyst at uh, the Minneapolis field office. Uh, you've, you've also spent a little time on the counterintelligence uh, side of things uh, for the law enforcement mission. Uh, as both of you know, uh, I, uh, I had retired uh, Special Agent Jill Sandborn on the show last fall, uh, primarily to discuss her leadership of the FBI's national security branch in Washington, D.C., uh, she covered the larger FBI missions around the national uh, national intelligence, national security challenges. Uh, can you give our listeners a sense of what role intel analysts play in those core missions uh, under the national security branch? Sure. So, And for folks who, who maybe didn't catch uh, former SAC, because she was our boss here in, yeah. in Minnesota yeah. for a year, year and a half. She was a, a great boss. She and was. A challenge uh, for us on the intel side, she was a great consumer <laughs> of intel. Um, <laughs> so she challenged us a lot, and it was great. Um, but uh, when we say the national security branch of the, uh, the FBI, that refers to, as you kind of alluded to, John, counterterrorism counterintelligence, and our weapons of mass destruction program. Now, as an analyst, I can tell you that there's a lot of other things that happen that impact national security outside of those three areas that the FBI is responsible for. Transnational organized crime is one that, uh, in the headlines uh, this week, a couple of different times of U.S. citizens being kidnapped and killed by drug cartels. Mm -hmm. And certainly the flow of, of drugs and narcotics into America is a national security risk. So there's a lot of stuff outside of the NSB branch or the national security branch that fall into those. But specific to your question, John, on... Uh, you know, how do analysts work and support, for example, counter uh, counterintelligence, rather? I, I think it's, again, that same process of trying to find out information that's relevant to that threat. Uh, as the FBI director has said in multiple times uh, in testimony to Congress and even in, in news interviews, 
for example, the FBI at any given time has about 2,000 investigations related to counterintelligence matters on the People's Republic of China mm. uh, and their aggressive attempts to obtain information illegally from the United States. And that's U.S. government information, industry information, trade secrets, research and development, and to conduct malign foreign influence activities here in the United States. Yeah. So as an analyst, that's a lot of stuff to right. look through, uh, to call through, to look for intent. You know, what are they interested in or going after here in the homeland? Uh, capabilities, how are they doing that? Who, who are they trying to leverage or what assets are they trying to leverage to do that? Um, and then we can, from that, then try to, again, look forward to, we know this is a thing they're interested in. We know this is a way they go after that type of thing. Therefore, what do we have here in Minnesota um, that re relates to that? And, and so that's just one of the things that uh, our CI folks are doing, our counterintelligence analysts are doing, and some of the work that I do in, in talking and working with them. And I, and I do want to return back to the, uh, the counterintelligence uh, uh, mission focus area a little bit later in the show. Uh, John, anything to say? about uh, you know the in intel analytical work and the national security branch side on the counterterrorism side um, I think I'll, I'll save that for okay. a bit here all right I, I would highlight uh, to, to both of you and to our uh, to our listeners that when I ever whenever I teach the uh, the US intelligence community course one of the first things I tell students at the very beginning of the course is that everybody spies on everybody in the world right every nation has got intelligence operations that they're running and every nation has a counterintelligence uh, effort to try and stop uh, critical national security secrets from being uh, from being leaked out from our like from the U.S. side uh, to another country in the world, but uh, China is on a different level than anything anything we've ever faced in the past. So the FBI has its work cut out for it uh, on on that role. Uh, we're going to take just a, a very short uh, break uh, to recognize our uh, our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back, uh, National Security This Week, with our two guests, John Watson and Krista Tarka, both of whom serve as intel analysts with the FBI's Minneapolis field office. Uh, gentlemen, let's get into the, the nuts and bolts uh, of our discussions on the intel side as much as we can, obviously, because a lot of what you do is classified. Uh, how has intelligence supported FBI law enforcement missions connected to events around the world but uh, linked to Minnesota? And, and, John, maybe we'll start with you on the counterterrorism side. Yeah, the, probably the best example that I'm familiar with is our international terrorism travelers cases. Uh, a great many special agents and intel analysts here in Minneapolis have worked on this subject since October 20 or two, yeah, October 2008 and even earlier until uh, now. Uh, what we had was actually two waves of Minneapolis residents who were leaving here and joining foreign terrorist organizations overseas. So from 2006 to 2011, we had a, a number of young men who went over to Somalia to join the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. In uh, in that time period, we had a number of other cases here locally. So if uh, you actually, your listeners wanted to actually know more about this, there's a lot of information out there. And if you look through newspaper articles, court records, you'd see that here just in Minneapolis, we had 30 cases related to El-Shabaab. So these were people who 
joined Al-Shabaab, tried to join Al-Shabaab, died fighting for Al-Shabaab, blew themselves up as a suicide bomber for Al-Shabaab, uh, gave money to Al-Shabaab, helped people get overseas. So we had 30 cases like that, um, approximately, and that largely ended in 2011. And that was really unique. Uh, nothing like that was going on at that scale in the United States at that time. So later on with the Islamic State, a lot of people would learn about foreign fighters and that sort of thing. But ironically, if you wanted to work terrorism in the FBI, their three best places probably were the massive New York division, uh, the massive well, Washington field office, and Minneapolis division out here on the edge of the prairie. You know, <laughs> um, And so that was really unique. And then starting in about 2012, we started getting travelers going to the Islamic State in Syria. And so that was kind of the global phenomenon, and a lot more field offices got involved in that sort of thing, uh, and a lot more foreign governments all around the world. Uh, in that case, if you went through public records, you'd see we've had at least 18 people locally who went overseas to go fight for the Islamic State or, or raise money or um, somehow supported the group. Um, in that case, actually, we started to see females actually traveling, which was a new wrinkle. Yeah. Um, the Islamic State, part of the message that they were pushing was creating a, a new society. So they had a wider range of people wanting to go over, doctors, for instance, uh, and some other field offices. They, uh, they, they created an actual caliphate, as they referred to it, right? They did, yeah. yeah. And it was a functioning country, essentially. Yeah. Uh, lawless, terrible, right. murderous country, but that's what it was. And some people bought into the, the propaganda and thought it would be a... Um, an experience they wanted to be part of. But we had a lot of those cases uh, after the Al-Shabaab cases, and those largely ended in 2016. So that, that's kind of the big, broad overview. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can talk about whatever aspects you want. Well, I, I would like to uh, ask, I mean, the, these are young Americans yeah. that have decided uh, to go join terrorist groups. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was it that you have found in your in your analytical work regarding these young Americans, what what caused them to go do this? Well, you know, your original question was, how does Intel apply to all this? You know, um, and some of the simple answers are, you know, if we you're out there looking for Intel, maybe that'll open a case here, you know, predicate a case here. Maybe during a case that we're investigating here, we can get additional information that'll help uh, establish a case somewhere else. But I think the biggest point of Intel with these counterterrorism cases was it was just a certain point of view. Uh, willingness to look at things as a whole. Uh, traditionally, the FBI, uh, they fo focus on cases. That's what the Bureau has always done. Mm -hmm. um, in my mind, that's always been the mark of a good special agent, somebody who can focus on that. If you take a kind of a broader intel sort of view, though, you can get to the thing that you're asking is, why is this happening across all these cases? And we had a lot of uh, people working on this, a lot of agents who established, especially agents, um, this sort of pattern that we saw that we called peer-to-peer -peer recruitment. Ah, so okay. we had, there, you know, there was a common misconception that these foreign terrorist organizations were recruiting people directly out of Minnesota, um, whether online, whether sending recruiters over here, whether there were possibly even recruiters living here. And by and large, that was just not the case. Um, what we were seeing were these young people who were basically radicalizing each other. It was harder to understand then. It's easier to understand now uh, with social media. Yeah. Um, young people whose social world sort of collapsed into a small rabbit hole of like-minded people. Um, and it was a pattern you could see across these ca cases. You would see these young people get pretty radicalized. They would try to radicalize people in their family. 
their family's not interested at all. Their right. parents are not interested at all. And that's another common misconception. People think the parents were radicalizing these kids. It was absolutely not the case. But there'd be friction there, and they would sort of be outcast from the family, which would just feed the process even more. So they kind of lose those moderate voices in their lives from their family, and they find buddies who are interested in the same sort of thing. Um, where they're looking at news of what was going on in Somalia, saying, look, uh, the Ethiopian army invaded Somalia. That's terrible. Uh, look at these, all these atrocities happening. Much of this was propaganda, admittedly, that al-Shabaab was putting out. But they would talk about these sorts of things, and they would say, you know, somebody should go do something about that. Uh, we should go do something about that. And we've seen and the process just sort of works and works and works until they radicalize each other to the point where they're actually going overseas. They're helping each other go overseas. In one instance, we saw them literally passing a hat around to put in money to buy an airline tickets. So here's how much money we can put together. We can buy X number of tickets. X number of us are going to go join the Islamic State. Hmm. So, and just to build on the propaganda piece, I had a chance. I was doing a presentation to the counterterrorism division of the FBI. So it was 800 employees, and they were probably all sleeping at this point. But <laughs> uh, I was able to find, and, and so we became kind of these consumers, at least I was, of this ISIS propaganda. Not a consumer in the sense of I was buying into it, but just looking at what they were trying to sell to people across the world, because this was global propaganda. And the, the slickness of the videos, the use of, of imagery, religious iconography, all of those things. And so when you think about yourself, and I, used to, I would sort of challenge people, imagine yourself at 17. I know, John, when you were considering going to the Naval Academy, you, know, you think about what motivates a 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old young person sitting in Minnesota. And you look at the way they were presenting this propaganda incredibly powerful some better than others some of it was clearly done in somebody's basement and not well done but some of it was professional grade slick graphics incredibly appealing to young people's emotions and then they start forming as john said these sort of networks amongst their friends and they're sharing these videos they're watching them at work a couple of our isis cases uh, the employers sort of came up on this was this employee is watching propaganda videos on his phone you know on breaks during the work day um, because it's so effective. It's so good at appealing to these young people's emotions and their sense of, of you know, what's right with the world or what's wrong with the world. So I just highlight that uh, as part of what, as what you were saying as well, John. Can, yeah. I, can I ask yeah. a little bit also, uh, you know, you talked about some of these young men sort of started to feel isolated uh, mm -hmm. and they, they are looking for a place to belong. Uh, they find this in their, in their peer group, people right. who are also radicali they are radicalizing each other. Could you talk a little bit about kind of the isolation that some of these kids may have been feeling in our society here where they yeah. sort of, I mean, they just couldn't find a place to fit in? Is that That's a societal problem that we failed to address. I, I think that that's definitely in that time frame that we were talking about of 2006, 2011 with the Al-Shabaab cases. That definitely was an aspect of, of what was going on. And we could actually see that in some of the propaganda videos of Al-Shabaab playing on that aspect. And that is... A lot of these young people were essentially second-generation Americans. So they were born maybe over in Somalia, uh, but they were very young when they came here. Yeah, babies. Baby, yeah, so they have no memory. And that was one of the ironic things about this is they were going overseas to fight in a country that they had no memory of. Yeah. And part of it's sort of hooked up to what I think you're going to is this whole identity sort of issue of they, they don't really feel connected with their parents' world but they don't feel totally connected with the United States yet, and they were sort of caught in between. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, I saw speak one time a professor, uh, Menkhaus, one of the leading uh, academics on Somalia, and he said during this time frame, sometimes, you know, when he's going around the country and, and if he met young Somali men, 
he would just ask them a question of where are you from? Right. Step back and watch the poor kid fumble this around. I'm from Minneapolis, but I'm really from Mogadishu. But, well, I haven't been to Mogadishu since I was four, and this, there's just no clear answer of yeah. that you would get now of. I'm from Minnesota. I'm a Minnesotan, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a small American. Uh, but back then, especially, you had a, a sort of age group where there wasn't a clear they had issues along those lines of what my identity is. And then here you have a terrorist group that comes out with a very clear answer to that question. You are a soldier of God. That's what you need to be. Uh, there was a propaganda video they put out, Al-Shabaab put out, called uh, Mujahideen Moments 5. And it was just a speaker talking to the camera. He had a mask on, but he, actually that speaker was a former Minneapolis resident who had joined Al-Shabaab. And he's basically speaking to people in Minneapolis saying, what are you going to do on Judgment Day when you die? How are you going to explain yourself to God? You know, you shouldn't try to work with them. There's a lot of them in there. Mm. You're not one of them. And just kind of poking at these young people who had real issues of where do I fit in in the world. Yeah. And and we should highlight that while uh, a significant number of them were, were young Americans of Somali descent, uh, not all. No. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that's that, that's another thing when I go out and speak. I try to remind people not to get hung up on um, uh, we we saw a lot of the cases uh, where people were Somali that were joining this group because just demographics. We had a large Somali population. Uh, but, yeah, we've had a white convert, black convert, uh, both of whom died. Uh, one one was the first American who died in Syria, was a local guy, uh, black guy who joined the Islamic State. Another was uh, Troy Castigar, a white guy, uh, who joined al-Shabaab. And so it wasn't limited to that. We've had other cases, too. Um, but yeah, it's it's not a phenomenon. It's not. It's it's not an ethnic thing. It's not a religious thing. Uh, like in your class, you teach the terrorism class. Um, that's been an academic area of study since the 1970s. And back then, terrorism had nothing to do with religion. Right. Um, so you, when you look at these issues, you, you want to strip away those red herrings. People get lost in these sorts of things of, you know, racial, ethnic, this or that. Yeah. Um, it's just not terribly important. But we had a large demographic there. Who's at risk? Maybe people who have a familial, familial connection. Uh, so we saw a lot of cases along those lines here. And, and I think if I recall uh, from previous times I've heard you talk, uh, one of the core solutions to, to this situation came from uh, the Somali-American community. Uh, that, you know, the FBI making inroads with the community because parents— uh, community leaders extremely concerned about the fact that you know their loved one, a uh, family member, just disappears. They, they have no idea what the heck happened to them. Yeah, uh, we really saw that in uh, when this these cases really exploded. They have, locally, the FBI was looking at these cases uh, prior to October 2008, but in October th- 2008, Sherwa Med, local Minneapolis man, went overseas and blew himself up, which was shocking. Uh, that was the first American who ever killed themselves for a terrorist group which was shocking enough. Uh, to me personally, it was shocking that this is a fellow Minnesotan. Mm-hmm. It was just hard to wrap your head around. But when that happened, immediately afterwards, we had a lot of parents in the Somali community come into our office and say, we're afraid that our son might have joined too. Mm-hmm. We don't know where he is. Uh, and, and this sort of shows in the model that we were talking about, the parents are not weren't radicalizing these kids. They were actually trying to discourage their beliefs. They sort of lost contact with their kids. And so they don't know where they really, they didn't know where they really were. And so that's one thing I actually mentioned to police, especially back then, was look at your missing persons cases. Uh, sometimes 
uh, parents will call in saying, I don't know where my kid is. And if you maybe see some indicators, maybe there's ties to something overseas, um, look at that. You might have a terrorism case. Your missing persons report might actually lead you to an international terrorism case, especially back then. Yeah, um, yeah it was in the, kind of around the time of the Islamic State uh, coming on. Uh, I actually participated in a panel discussion at Metropolitan State University. <sighs> And uh, there was a, an FBI special agent that sat on that panel. I was on that panel as somebody teaching courses on terrorism and counterterrorism. Uh, at the time, uh, Ilhan Omar was on that panel with us, and she was an assistant to one of the Minneapolis City Council uh, uh, council members. Uh, and there was an imam on there and a psychologist. And one of the points that I tried to drive home, and uh, Chris, maybe this is uh, meaningful to you as well, is, look, if, for me, as an intelligence officer— if that individual is coming up on my radar overseas in a combat zone, I don't know if that is an American or not uh, at, at, at the other end of that counterterrorism mission. And so I think the work that, that you do here, John, uh, on the counterterrorism side, uh, the, the intel analytical side, the intercession, uh, in, you know, interdicting these kids from, from becoming radicalized and moving forward saves them from the fate that— uh, that Chris and I know they're going to they're gonna meet uh, if they come into conflict with American forces somewhere else in the world. Yeah. I just want to make the point it's not me yeah. personally. Yeah, no, I understand. It is a whole lot of people uh, right. that contribute yeah. a little bit to a, an yeah. awful lot. Right. But do you want to respond to that, Chris? Yeah, or? my only point I think you were, you were alluding to, too, is just the, you know, the community, the Somali community in Minnesota was victimized yes. by these terrorist organizations. Yeah. Absolutely victimized. And I think there was a tendency to maybe go the other way, is they're the source of this problem. Right. In reality, they were the, the sheer absolute victims of this. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of good people, you know, it's a, it's a large, large community, and mm-hmm. the numbers of people who left to go join these or were involved in these is so minute relative to the size of the population right that to label them in any way or to consider yeah. that was just an injustice to that that community and the, the things that they do to our state and our culture here so and, and there's a point here that often goes missed is you know we've had all these cases of and you know i i mentioned 50 cases that are known um how the F, fbi minneapolis couldn't make any progress on any one of those unless people in the community were helping us right right um from giving us information to basically translators. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody, in, to my knowledge, no special agent. Well, there is no special agent or intel analyst in Minneapolis division who speaks Somali. Yeah. You know, um, we can't do step one unless somebody in the community is helping us, somebody who can speak Somali, and that's going to yeah. be somebody from the community. That's a great point. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Chris Tatarka and John Watson both of whom serve as intelligence analysts with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and we're discussing intelligence support to FBI law enforcement operations. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Chris Tatarka, you sometimes have supported the uh, counterintelligence mission. Uh, We could pivot over to that that discussion. What, What exactly is counterintelligence from the FBI perspective, and how does intelligence analysis support that mission? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I think if you'd asked someone 20 years ago what counterintelligence was in the FBI or or in the intel community or just in general, I think people would hearken back to the Cold War, to spy movies, to spy versus spy, uh, foreign personnel either, you know, co-opting somebody in the United States or coming to the United States to obtain information on the U.S. government or the U.S. military. Uh, but we are in the information age, of course, and so what you see now is that definition has broadened dramatically. 
uh, now that that definition or that concept, at least, of counterintelligence would include theft of intellectual property, theft of trade secrets, and one that I think has got a lot of uh, conversation probably five or six years ago and less lately is malign foreign influence, nefarious actions by foreign entities to disrupt how we perceive ourselves in the United States. So, but that being said, that first thing, that espionage, that traditional counterintelligence mission of trying to prevent people from obtaining that information uh, still goes on. So you've added a whole lot to the bucket of counterintelligence um, cases and matters uh, that exist. And I think, interestingly, and I, I can give you a, an example of, of some cases I mentioned, 2,000 at any given time. And, and these are a little historic, but I think from an analytic perspective, they're both super interesting um, examples of how this thing plays out in the modern world. Um, 2003 to about 2008, an individual uh, named Keishe Huang was uh, employed by Dow Chemicals uh, down in Indiana, so up here in the upper Midwest as well. He was a researcher, um, very talented researcher, at least from from everything I could uh, glean from reading about uh, this case later on. Uh, he was a research scientist, I think it said, I said at Dow. He was working specifically on organic pesticides, mm. which, you know, as a U.S. citizen, I mean, obviously Dow wanted to make profit on, on whatever they could develop, but... Uh, you know, uh, coming up with a way to make pesticides that would not harm the environment and still protect crops, you know, incredibly important to the well-being of the United States. Uh, he left uh, Dow in 2008, came to work for a large private uh, Minnesota company who also is heavily involved and invested in uh, research and development. He was working specifically on, on food um, research related to improving um, food uh, production um, across sort of the globe, but in this case for this Minnesota company. Uh, became, law enforcement became aware of him through some other investigations and some victim, potential victim reporting. So dealing with private sector was something that seemed a little suspicious. So investigation was, was undertaken on this individual uh, after doing all of that sort of work to figure out what he was up to. Uh, f- federal law enforcement learned essentially that during that period when he was at Dow, he was sending information, virtually everything he was doing, to uh, individuals in Germany and individuals in the People's Republic of China. He was helping uh, Chinese firm develop similar research facilities inside of China. Uh, and then when he had come to Minnesota, he was also sending information, what he was learning from a Minnesota company, to a research scientist at a university in China, all in this you know, 10-year period. Uh, he eventually pled guilty to theft of intellectual property, was sentenced to prison. And in his plea, he acknowledged that his theft caused the U.S. businesses somewhere between 7 to $20 million in lost revenues because of his theft of research and development. And so I think... On the surface, I think as a citizen of Minnesota, you think, oh, wow, these companies lost some money. That's, that's, that's too bad for them. Um, but in, in this case of this Minnesota company, since we're, we're sitting here in, in, in Northfield in, in egg country, uh, down here in the southern part of Minnesota, you know, those people are employing and hiring Minnesotans. That money goes into our economy. I think it's uh, egg week here in Minnesota. And I heard something yesterday uh, that the egg and food industry in Minnesota accounts for about a third of our state's economy. Hmm. 
And so now we have a foreign power stealing research and development for their own benefit and taking that money really right out of our own economy. So very harmful from a, from a state perspective and a, an industry perspective and not just harmful to those businesses like, like it obviously was. Um, you know, from that case, you can fast forward to others. And another one comes to mind of an individual down in Kansas. So a few hundred miles as the crow flies from where we're sitting right now. Uh, he was involved and hired to work specifically on uh, rice seeds. So genetically modifying rice seeds with the intent of making these seeds better. And they were attempting to, to leverage those, uh, the proteins that come off of these. I'm getting way outside of my uh, non-technical <laughs> background. Uh, but to leverage the proteins in the medical industry. So now we're touching on another industry. Uh, that individual hosted a, a delegation of three or four folks from the, the People's Republic of China government officials. He toured them around the Midwest. Um, there was some suspicious activity as well. So the federal law enforcement, the FBI and others were aware of some potentially concerning activities. When that delegation left the airport, the Department of Homeland Security searched their baggage and found rice seeds, modified rice seeds they were taking back to China so they could then do the same thing with those uh, overseas. So it's just another example of how this sort of threat manifests itself. Now, from an analytic perspective, you can kind of take those two cases and you can kind of start to build a little bit of a of a template for what these threat actors were trying to do and what they might do in the future. So it's almost like a little math formula. You have their intent. We know they're interested in, in research and development related to food, related to agriculture, and uh, re related to anything that would help them in those two sectors. Uh, and we know their capabilities. They're, they're, they're hiring or they're co-opting people to work in our companies here in Minnesota or in the Midwest uh, to take that information. And then we sort of overlay that on top of what we know about Minnesota. I mentioned our, uh, the importance to our economy of those two sectors. But I think a lot of folks don't realize this. Minnesota is second in the nation per capita in the number of Fortune 500 companies. Mm. Uh, we're also, I think, fifth in aggregate number of patent applications and patents being granted um, by the U.S. government. I mean, this is a heavily innovative place that we live in here in Minnesota. And these threat actors are not bypassing us because it's cold in the winters and we're, you know, sort of in quote unquote flyover country. They're coming here to get this information. And these two cases show that. So as an analyst, we can take that trend and then uh, give that information to our decision makers, which allows our executive management or our supervisors to say, what can we do with that relative to the threat? So things like defensive briefings, going out agents or analysts and talking to private companies. Hey, we think based on this sort of template of what's been happening, that here's some things that you might be at risk of. And that does two things for us, one of which it, it hopes, hopefully helps them shore up their defenses. The other piece is it then opens up a communications channel. So should they see something, they know who to call in our organization so we can work together with them uh, on doing some of those things. And it also helps, I think, our management look at resources within the FBI internally. Do we have the right number of agents working this threat relative to all of those other things that I talked about up front, which is an incredibly difficult decision for our management. And that's why they get better parking spots than me in big offices <laughs> and better paychecks. Uh, but that's incredibly difficult, right? You're, you're talking about, do I take somebody off of crimes against children right. and put them on counterintelligence threats to the agriculture sector? 
or do I move that from counterterrorism or, or whatever else? There's only so many pieces of pie, and they got to slice that thing up and hand it to somebody, which is part of what the intel function is hopefully helping them do, yeah. at least in a meaningful, smart way, and, and knowing where they're assuming risk. Yeah, and that goes, I mean, look, I'm a retired intelligence officer. I understand that there's only so much money to go around uh, when Congress authorizes and appropriates money for various elements of the intelligence community. It's primarily to pay for people. Uh, and there's only so much uh, money that they're willing to appropriate for FBI or DIA or CIA. So there's only so many people to go around. But the challenge is on the counterintelligence side, it's a massive, massive challenge. Hundreds of billions of dollars of intellectual property theft over the, say, the last decade alone. Uh, that's not an insignificant damage to the American economy. Sure. And, and, and again, it's a lot of that, not a lot, but a, a significant amount of that is right here in, uh, in Minnesota and, yeah. and the Dakotas as well. And yeah. so we are at risk and we have been victimized um, by some of that activity. Yeah. And it's not just the ag sector. It's uh, all different uh, economic sectors of, of the U.S. economy. Absolutely. And certainly our medical device and our medical industry here is top notch. And therefore, that makes them uh, of interest to a whole host of, of malicious actors to yeah. try to gain information. Yeah, I think it's really important that you uh, that you highlighted the difference between the sort of the national security espionage that we think about uh, with regards to you know weapons secrets and platforms and intelligence capabilities, uh, and, and this economic side, the industrial uh, espionage that takes place. Uh, you you talked about malign actors. Uh, we we don't really have time to get into it today, but that's really more of a covert action world where you're trying to influence uh, governance. Uh, that's also a, a counterintelligence mission on the part of the FBI to stop foreign covert action targeting America. Yeah, and I, I won't take a, a lot of time, but there's certainly some interesting cases in the media, Congressional Research Service, I think even the Star Tribune, talking about uh, malign Russian actors based in St. Petersburg, creating Facebook pages and other social media pages uh, to incite um, hostility during uh, officer-involved shootings, racially sensitive matters, um, pipeline protests, environmental matters. And these, these things, they look incredibly good. They look incredibly legitimate. And they're literally being done by somebody sitting in a building in St. Petersburg, Russia. Stir the pot. Stir the pot. Yeah. Uh, we don't have very much time left, about five minutes left in our show. Uh, I, do, I, also, I always want to ask guests who represent you know, govern, government agencies and whatnot, uh, how, how can interested young people find out more about joining uh, the FBI, both, both as a special agent but also as an intelligence analyst or, or other positions? Uh, what would you recommend they, they do to learn more about this? The, the place to go is fbijobs.gov. You can okay. find a tremendous amount of information there, and so that's your first step. Uh, and there are an amazing number of jobs that you can have in the FBI, uh, over 200 different career types. Oh, wow. So if you think in broad categories, there's the S, uh, special agent category, the intelligence analyst category, and then the professional support category, which is massive. Uh, recently, we needed here locally in Minneapolis a registered nurse and a public affairs specialist. Uh, among other jobs that are out there are language analyst, victim specialist, foreign, forensic accountant, uh, mechanics, if FBI needs mechanics. Um, d data scientists, uh, administrative specialists. I, I once saw an opening for a, a carpenter. Oh, um, right. I don't know what that job would be like, but I think it'd be cool to be an FBI. Carpenter. We also have a photographer, John. I told him I would get him. I would oh, mention yeah. this yeah. morning uh, to take pictures of crime scenes. I was like, "Why do we have a photographer?" I thought maybe to get my photo for my badge or something, which is part of it, but also to, to go to crime scenes and take evidence photos of crime scenes. So we have a a paid professional photographer on our staff. Every office does. Uh, I always try to give my guests uh, the final word on the show. Uh, maybe I can get each of you about a minute and a half. 
what what other thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners uh, on this uh, this topic of intelligence analysis and the FBI? Uh, why, uh, John, why don't we start with you? And uh, just the final thoughts of um, I just we wanted to make the point of what the FBI does. Yeah. And the FBI they, they work to protect the American people and their rights. That's the mission statement. That's what we do. Uh, the bureau investigates suspected crimes and it collects evidence. It refers that evidence to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the U.S. Attorney's Office decides whether to, there's enough evidence for a charge. That's what the FBI does. It's about that simple. Uh, if you're talking specifically in terms of an intelligence analyst, you're working on a criminal program, you're mostly supporting those investigations. Uh, if you're talking about being an intel analyst on a national security program, you may be working to support those national security cases, but you're also trying to focus on getting ahead of the larger threat. It's not an international terrorism case against that person. It's what is Al-Shabaab trying to do? Uh, and your goal there is to get left of the boom, as they say, of hopefully um, meeting the expectation of the American people that the FBI gets ahead of these things and actually prevents them. Uh, I think that's the number one mission today is to stop terrorist attacks for the it, FBI, right? Yeah, that got formally stated by Director Mueller. And I was going to actually jump in in your discussion with Chris and say, you know, when he's talking about how they slice up the pie, this has been an ongoing thing with the FBI forever, is our obligation is to do what the American people needs, need us to do. Yeah. And that changes year to year, right. month to month. Right. And it goes on and on and on. And so yeah. the day 9-11 happened, the priorities of the FBI were literally turned upside down. Yeah. Uh, and so at any given moment, it's hard to, you know, yeah. it, it could go any way. Right. The expectation is very high on the FBI what to do. Yeah. But I want people to know that that's what the FBI does. I wish more people knew that. I wish, uh, you know, they, they realized the FBI were basically people locally. It's not people flying in from D.C. to tell the locals what to do, you know. Yeah. Uh, we kind of are the locals. We live here. Uh, I've lived here my whole life. Um, the FBI employees are your neighbors. They're working to protect the community. Um, and, you know, I'm a lifelong Minnesotan. I've uh, helped a lot of people, uh, dedicated people, try to keep ugly threats out of our state. And uh, I'm happy I have to work with so many people that are focused on that goal. Well said, well said. Chris? So just very quickly, and it kind of builds on what John said, I know there's so much attention in the last few years, last five years, on the FBI and what we do and what we shouldn't do, what we ought to do, and a lot of narrative about that. And, and, hey, I'm a citizen. I spent 20 years, I think, defending this country in places overseas and and here. And and so I think it's great. It's healthy in a democracy for folks to talk about the role of federal law enforcement, and, and all those things are very healthy. I do feel sometimes, and as an analyst, I assess sometimes that there's an over focus on that. And sometimes people get hyper-focused on these high-visibility matters of certain individuals and lose sight of the forest, which is so important to us as citizens. And the, the threats that are out there, I think our director mentioned, uh, you, you know, for example, hundreds of arrests uh, on the U.S. border and the southwest border for drugs and, and violent uh, crime. Uh, 50 arrests a day, the FBI with law enforcement partners over the summer, last summer for violent criminal offenses. 50 every single day across hmm. the country. Um, last fall in Minnesota, we had an individual sentenced to 45 years for prison for victimizing over 500 young girls via child pornography. Uh, and nobody knows about these cases. And, and oftentimes, I, I get that that's human nature. We, you know, we focus on slam dunks and, and buzzer beater shots because it's March Madness and not the free throws that win the game because they're not as exciting. Uh, but I think it's important that folks uh, as citizens, as taxpayers, have that awareness of what we do. And I encourage people, go to FBI.gov or DOJ.gov or just open up a, a, a search engine and type in FBI sentencing. 
uh, and just look at the, the litany of, of bad actors that are out there doing things. And this organization is, is involved in all of those. And those are the threats that are impacting us. Uh, and they're very, very important to understand that, that context of what's out there. Uh, and somebody has to be doing that work. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of today's show. The hour just flies by. It's so amazingly fast. John Watson and Chris Tatarka, uh, both of you serve as intelligence analysts for the FBI. Thank you so much for joining us for this past hour. I want to wish both of you a fantastic day as you make uh, the drive back up to uh, the FBI field office in the Brooklyn Center, right? That's where it's located? Yep, correct. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, John. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.